0: That's what they do, they sweep you off your feet, and he basically erased me. He just completed it by erasing me as an individual. I did not see any of these things as red flags, I did not see any of these things. Everything that he did, courtship and living together until we were married, are right on the power and control wheel as ways that people get and maintain control over another individual. I, I was working overtime to earn, you know, be loyal, because that was really big things to him. I couldn't work because he just wanted to sequester in his house all day long. In all those homes, he was 100% the person who decorated and furnished, and I had zero say in any of that. I would, of course, when this was all over, like four days later, like completely bruised and bloody sometimes. In 1994, I called 911 at the point where I thought he was going to kill me.
1: The When Dating Hurts podcast is sponsored by Nom Nom. I'm a big advocate for better food for pets. When they eat healthier, they live healthier. And Nom Nom's food for dogs is full of fresh proteins a dog loves and the vitamins and nutrients they need to thrive. Nom Nom meals are pre-portioned for your dog's exact caloric needs. So it's the easiest way to take the guesswork out of feeding your dog the best. Just tell them about your pup, age, breed, weight, allergies, and protein preferences. Get fresh, pre-packaged, totally nutritious meals delivered directly to your door for even less. Order Nom Nom today. Go to trynom.com slash when dating hurts and get 50% off your first order, plus free shipping. And Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. That means if your dog doesn't love each meal, Nom Nom will refund your first order. Nom Nom is real good food for your dog. Head to trynom.com slash when dating hurts. I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. Today we're speaking with Patricia McLean. In 1987, Patricia was married and remained married for 29 years until her husband was arrested for domestic violence in 2016. We're not here to focus on Don McLean, the singer. Instead, we will be focused on Patricia, a highly accomplished photojournalist and human rights advocate, that's not all. Patricia is the author of a list of books, including All Fall Down, which illuminates the inexorable curse of child stardom. Her photographs are in the permanent collection at both the Farnsworth Art Museum and the Portland Museum of Art, both are in Maine. And Patricia is the founder and president of Finding Our Voices, launched in 2019 in Camden, Maine, Finding Our Voices is a nonprofit organization that marshals survivor voices, community creativity, and the support of businesses to help girls and women recognize, avoid, safely leave, and heal from dangerous relationships. Finding Our Voices was also established to educate the general community about the complexity, insidiousness, and pervasiveness of domestic abuse. Patricia, having you join us on this podcast is an honor. I mean that sincerely. Welcome to the When Dating Hurts podcast.
0: Well, thank you, and I'm glad to be talking with another survivor and someone who also is doing what you can to help others avoid what we went through.
1: Yes, we know what we're talking about. What I'd like to do, if we could, is kind of turn back the calendar a bit And so how would you describe your life around 1987 when you first met your husband-to-be?
0: I was a reporter on a daily newspaper. I guess I was kind of living my dream because I grew up in Montreal and I'd always wanted to live in California. You know, it was a golden state for everybody living in the cold, through the cold winters of Montreal. So, and I wanted to be a newspaper reporter and I left home maybe 18 and just went to California, Greyhound bus, and just worked my way up to a daily newspaper. So was living in California, working as a reporter, award-winning uh, feature writer. And um, I guess that's what I was doing, but I was working really hard. So really long hours and um, for very little pay. So it was tough. You know, San Francisco, very expensive place to live. So I I never, I didn't have any money. And it was lonely, I would say, because I was just working all the time. So I didn't really have time to really have a social life. So I think I was at a point where I was kind of looking for a change or something different or something exciting, you know, because I just, I guess I felt like it was, it was kind of tough slog, slog, tough slogging kind of when, when, when I met um, Don.
1: So you then somehow finagled an interview with him.
0: Uh, Yeah, it was interesting because I heard that he was coming through town and uh, as I said, I'm I'm a feature writer, so human interest stories, I was always, that's what I liked and I didn't really care about celebrity interviews, like I just felt that like there's so many of those, like let's talk about just people, you know, who are all around us, like they're so interesting and I was kind of frustrated with the whole celebrity culture and about how, you know, they were always like quoted and Never really said anything that interesting. So my whole thing was really, what I would did actually is I would get in my car and I would drive around and I would just find, like every day, like just find someone, just stumble on someone and write a story about them. And it was just-
1: Oh, that's great. I mean, that could be just anybody.
0: Well, that's what it was. Like one time it was this guy who, you know, was a, one time it was, I don't know, this one time I just met this guy and I started talking to him. And he was waiting for like, I think it was $500 and I can't remember what it was, but he he was like, that's what was going to change his life. Like it would, it was going to be $500 and it was just so poignant that everything was focused on that. And um, then this other time, I I, I kind of like gritty stuff too. So I remember like sitting in a car with a prostitute and just talking to her about her life. But anyway, it was just, and, and it was a lot, I was a lot of pressure too, because it was like at least like two, one or two features a day I would be churning out. Um, and, and I I would never really, I would have to find the subject. So it was exciting, but it was also, as I said, it was, it was a lot of work. And I I guess I would just describe myself as a kind of burnt out on what I was doing a little bit by the time I met Don.
1: You got this interview with him.
0: Oh, so the whole thing, the interview. Yes. So when I heard he was coming through town, it wasn't, I didn't want to interview him like a celebrity interview. what, What appealed to me was that here was this guy that, um, in, you know, the early 70s, like I remember when I was in camp, you know, singing, everyone was singing American Pie. And so he was so well known. And then all of a sudden, like, you just never heard from him anymore. And it was just intriguing to me to think that someone could be so famous and have a song that was so famous, and just basically disappeared. And so, so that, human, that was the human interest element that was appealing to me about, about Don. And that's why I wanted to interview him
1: yeah that's that's a great angle yeah it's a great and angle not
0: that I would of course i I wouldn't let him know that was the angle right but
1: um, yeah, I was thinking that I didn't say it, but And yes. in
0: fact, I remember after we were married and I was really nervous that he was going to track find that article that I had written because that was kind of it was kind of about that, you know but
1: yeah, I can't imagine what your questions were. You know, I remember you as a great star, and then uh, where have you been? No,
0: yeah, it wasn't any of that, but it was more. It,
1: I'm sure you didn't. It ask was more that.
0: the setup was more, you know, just well. Anyway, just to put it that that was my, that was why I was presenting it to the readers. That was what it wasn't a mean thing at all. It was just as I, I was never mean to anybody in my writing. It was all about illuminating and human condition and everything. But um, that was that was what my interest in in, in him was.
1: So you had your opportunity to sit down with him and you did your interview and you were besides, this is Don McLean. He did this famous music and these type of things. I can't believe it's you kind of a thing. What was it about him maybe that personally attracted you to thinking, you know, I'll date this guy or whatever that is?
0: When I saw him, he he just came on really, really strong. I mean, and that's again, like I realize it now, like that's what they do. They sweep you off your feet and that's exactly what he did. I mean, if you talk to any woman and, you know, meets this local guy, you know, at the bar, he would he would do the same thing that Don yeah. did with me. Yeah, Just, you know, an abuser. I'm saying if you met a a, a, a an abuser at a bar and they'd present themselves really well and they would they sweep you off your feet. That's what they do. they, they wanna move they, it along. They pour on the pour on the charm.
1: Yeah, you were quoted as saying the relationship moved along very quickly and it's really in no time, another line you used, which I think jumps off the page when I read it, you said he wanted to quote, seal the deal.
0: Well, basically the night I met him, I, you know, got, we we had the interview and then he was just, you know, put a chair out for me. It's the side of the stage. So I could watch, you know, John Baez who was following because he had opened for John Baez and then, you know, invited me to have a drink with him. and, And he told me he loved me that night. Who does oh. who does that? I mean,
1: right? Yes. And course.
0: and he was just really focused on me, and um, it was flattering. And yeah, it was flattering, and it was it was exciting. Like going back to what you said about, you know, I think you mentioned something about I can't believe I'm here. Or something like it, it. It was really just like wow. Like it was it was it was something different. Like it. He he. What he is well known. You know, people knew his name, and so here he is. Like really, um, you know, tells me he loves me. I mean, it's. It's crazy, but it was kind of, it sort of felt, yeah, I was, I was, I was definitely swept off my feet. So things, mo- things did move very quickly. Like we, I lived in California and he lived in New York and he was always on the road. And pretty much he called me after a few days and we just, every morning we talked on the phone for hours and he flew me out to um, come to his next concert. And that was exciting, you know, getting on a plane and flying to his next show, to a show. And then yeah. after a few of those weekends, right away, you know, talking about moving in together. And so then it was all about that, like moving in together. So I just prepared to...
1: Oh, does that mean you quit your job and pack up and...
0: Well, that's what it meant. It meant... And here we go, right? I up, mean,
1: you had this career that was cooking, maybe burning you out. But next thing you know, total scene change, like a cut in a movie where all of a sudden you're in another state and uh, unpacking your bags.
0: Well, a couple of things about that. I mean, one of the things was um, I did hesitate because... I had spent a long time building my career and I, cause I started, I didn't major in this in college and right. I started working on, you know, monthlies and weeklies and dailies. And I my, my goal was to work at the San Francisco Chronicle. And I felt that I was on the way to that. So it was a big deal for me to just stop in my tracks and give this up. And as far as unpack my bags, there really weren't many bags to pack because one of the things that he did is he flew out uh, on that weekend that we were going to, I was going to move back with him. And that was like the day, my last day at work, I had given up my apartment, I had sold my car, and then I had packed all my things that I wanted to take back with me into a box. And this had my newspaper clippings from the like the seven, eight year you know, seven years that I've been a reporter because I was, mm. I had just, just turning 27. All had, of
1: your work, basically, in one had, place. It had
0: all my work. It had my poems and it had, had my stories. I was trying to write a book. It had my family photos. Um, it had everything that made made me me. And um, I left for work that morning, and the box was there. And I came back, and the box wasn't there. And I asked where it was, and he said he threw it in the dumpster. Oh. And then I said I couldn't really believe it. What he was, I didn't know what he was talking about. And he said, Oh, I thought it was for the, for, I thought it was garbage. And, oh. I mean, he thought that I, you know, meant it to be for the garbage. It, it didn't even, it didn't even make sense. Like, why wouldn't you check with someone? And what? I never asked him to put anything in the garbage for me. And, you know, if you just look through it, it was probably an open box. You could see all those things. So he did it deliberately. So he he basically erased me. What I had not erased already by giving up all these things that um, made me independent, he just, you know, completed it by erasing me as an individual. And now I was, you know, Don McLean's girlfriend. And um, that's it.
1: Now, at this point, you're not married, though, right?
0: We weren't married, but again, immediate, like right away, like talking about getting married. So that was part of it. So it was all about that. Like, we're going to get married. We're going to get married. And we did get married pretty quickly because I moved in with him in October and we were married in March.
1: Right. That's clicking along. That's for sure. So here you are. uh, Your stuff is gone, basically, you know, which is like you say, it's like erasing your identity in some ways. Mm Mm-hmm. And you're married, so it's going along, and I guess you're having more strange moments here and there, but at some point it it starts to really change, and this dream is changing. What's happening when you started to know that that it wasn't just you know writing things off as bad luck, and uh, you know the box goes, and maybe some other things like that, but at some point you start to to see things that you say this is kind of unmistakable that that this is wrong or this well, is well
0: I didn't I did not see any of these things as red flags. I did not see any of these things as abuse. I did not I was not aware of the power and control wheel and how everything that he did in those months of both courtship and living together until you know till we were married are right on the power and control wheel as ways that people get and maintain control over another individual. But but it was kind of interesting. I think my circumstance was kind of, well, all, in, all, all abusive situations are interesting in their way, of course. But this one, the flavor, the specific, I guess, flavor of it was that a lot of the things that um, I see now as abusive or that I might have questioned, I put to the fact that he was famous. So, for instance, he... So, he,
1: so right off the bat, he's, he, obviously things are going to be different because he's different, exactly. right?
0: So, so, for instance he was, he wasn't in touch with any family. Like he was estranged from every family member and he had no friends. And he, he explained the reason that he had no, he was estranged from his family as um, when he got famous, they all, all, they all wanted something from him. And he was so generous and, you know, to a fault. And then finally he just had enough. And, and then why he described, um, he was in battle with everybody and he had grudges against so many people, but he always had the story about, he was screwed. You know, he was screwed by his manager. He was screwed by um, his, you know, record label uh, on and on and on. So again, those were, and then the fact that he was so like impatient to the point where we would get in the car and get groceries. And he, he usually didn't go out, but, I came to find out that he, before me, there was a woman living with him who did all his errands. He just didn't go out. But now, you know, trying to sort of have a semblance of a normal life with me, we would get in the car together and go to the store. So I would go in the store. And I remember the woman who ran the store said to me, you're the fastest shopper I've ever seen because I would get, go in there and I would have to race through the aisles because if I wasn't out in like a few minutes, he would honk his horn. And he would get really annoyed. So that's one, you know, like that's weird. Like, why didn't I say, like, go to the store yourself? Or like, this is ridiculous. I'm not gonna rush around. But at the time, again, I, I, I put it to, you know, he was famous, and he he's recovering. He was, you know, it was just really difficult to be around so many people. So he's trying to, you know, that that's that's a thing that's happened. And and even with my family, like, he wanted nothing to do with my family. And he didn't even want me to go see my family. And I told them, you know, Don's had some bad experiences, you know, being famous. He's just had so many people around him. And that's why he's like he is. So if he didn't give me the reason why he was on him. I would make excuses, would for, make him. excuses for him. So,
1: right. Part of the enabling part, you know. Well, yes. Not, not that you intended to, of course, but and the other part, too, you're painting a, a very strong picture of isolation because he's kind of isolating himself and then he's isolating you from everybody else, too. So now it's just the same old, same old, which is uh, it's just you and me. Well, you know, it, it's all about it, it, it's all about me, but it's you and me.
0: Well, it is. And that that was kind of two ways to look at that, because like, for instance, when I was about to have our first child, he went on the road like a week before the baby was due. and he wrote down this phone number of this neighbor I had never met and said, I've talked to her. And if you need to go to the hospital, you can call her. I mean, that was the only person in our life that I could mm-hmm. do that with. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. But so that's the isolation. But um, on the other hand, I guess there was something kind of flattering about the fact that here's this person who has, does not let anyone in their life, but he, he's admitted me into his life and right. You're super met. special to him, super special because I'm everything to him. And you know, so that was flattering. And also, you know, so that that's how I saw it. I just saw it as he's very fragile emotionally, but he's mm-hmm. open himself. And then also, he never trusted anybody. So I, I was working overtime to earn his trust and working overtime to, um, you know, be loyal, because that was really big things to him. So
1: loyalty. Sure. Now, I read an article that said that he chose the cars you drove, and he was always leasing them in his name. That That was part of it, right?
0: Yeah, this time I mean, on. when I so I had no money because I came to live with him with zero. I paid off my debt. You know, I had I borrowed money from my mother, I had no credit card debt or anything, but I, I had zero money and I couldn't work because he just wanted to sequester in his house all day long. And, you know, his thing was watching, you know, stupid TV and Western movies. And I was his playmate to do that, all those things with. So, we, there's no way I could work. I, we just were hanging out all the time, like all mm-hmm. the time together. So, so I had no money. And, um, he, at, at some point he, he opened up, a, gave me a credit card. I think he put a credit card, but it, of course it was in his name and, you know, there was a certain limit to it. And then, yeah, every, uh, all the money, you know, came from him. I, I later on I started to make money as a children's photographer but I used that money, you know, to buy him presents or to buy gifts for people or uh, to charity because he didn't give any money to charity. And I felt really guilty about that because everyone knew us as having a lot of money with a big house on the hill. And I, I felt like we need to get, you know, we need to be charitable here. So I would use my own money for that. And so I never, you know, I didn't, and, and then as far as everything in his name, I mean, I left when I was 55 and I had zero credit. Because huh. I never had anything in my name.
1: Never had it established.
0: No. And, and, right. and, and his, yeah, the cars were the cars were his. Again, not even cars that I wanted. You'd think with our lifestyle, you know, for, house, for estates. And he was just getting more and more money every year. He was just very successful because he owned his publishing. So that was, he, he made a lot of money from that. But I, he, you know, he, he chose the cars that he wanted to drive. But he would basically give me you know, his cast offs or, you know, that kind of thing that the car that he didn't want because he was getting another one. So my taste, I could never ex- express my taste either. Like in all those homes, he was 100% the person who decorated and um furnished. And I had zero say in any of that.
1: I'm just curious, did you ever feel that at any point along the way that, that you were the cause of, of what was happening?
0: Well, yeah, because, um, the, the pattern of the arguments were that I guess the rampages would be that I would just say something, you know, and, and he would, um, it, it was, it was always nothing. Right. So he would, it was it, later it became like the way I said something. So he'd pick up in like an inflection in my voice and he would pounce on that. And then I would be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like it was ridiculous. There was no. I wasn't doing anything, and so I would try to defend myself, and then in trying to defend myself, I would say something, and he would he would latch onto that, and it would wrap mm-hmm, up the fight. Mm-hmm. And then kind of
1: give it back to you in a sarcastic way.
0: He used it. He used it to latch onto a, and like wrap a, like up the like a
1: weapon. Using your own words as a weapon against you.
0: Well, kind of, but it didn't even make sense. It would somehow just wrap up the fight with what I said, even though it made no sense to do that. And before we knew it. Sometimes he was completely out of control, but it always went back to that initial spark that supposedly came from me. And so I would, of course, when this was all over, like four days later, like completely bruised and bloody sometimes and and just like completely like drained. Like I'd be like, why didn't I maybe not say anything when he was haranguing me? Why didn't I? You know, so that's what it was always. I always went back to that that he would say I was the fault of it. And I began to believe that and always thinking, what can I do so that we don't, it doesn't get to this point. It doesn't get started.
1: You don't don't hit the trigger. When you say bruised and bloody. do you mean literally, or do you mean emotionally?
0: I mean, literally, um, the first seven years of our marriage, um, 1994, I called 911 at the point where I thought he was going to kill me. And we were married, we started, we got married at 1987. So this about seven years, the first seven years, he, um, yeah, he brutalized me physically, like about once a month. Um, and by that, I mean like pulling my hair. So it felt like it was coming up from the roots, uh, kicking me, punching me. He raped me. He, um, yeah. Uh, he, I never had a black eye, which is why I might not have, you know, you know, that's the stereotype of the domestic abuse victim. Yes. I never had a black eye, but I, I was absolutely bruised all the time. And in fact, After the last year that we were together, I was looking through. I decided, okay, now we're gonna. I'm gonna organize all these family photos that we have, like going back 25 years. So I I took that as a project, and I came across photo after photo of myself as a young mother, like you know, with bruises up and down my legs. And and I started to think, like, why? Like, no one ever said anything. You know, I was walking around in shorts and I had bruises all the time. And so yeah, absolutely, literally. um, But but then it would, you know, that would happen, and then it would be over. And then and it's the same thing. I talked to women who've been through this. They all say the same thing. And then, and then they apologize. Well, he never apologized. So that wasn't it. But, but, but then he slowly get back to the dawn that, you know, that I, I thought I loved, you know, which was the side of him, which was boyish and fun. And, you know, um, we had a good time. We laughed together and everything. So, so that, then I would just, you know, cherish those times and. Okay. and Great and,
1: relief. Sure. And,
0: and so that, that's what, that was, was the pattern.
1: Yes, and that, that's exactly what I you were leading me up to because I know from talking with people who are survivors who really have gone through it. And what you're describing, it, it's confoundingly similar every time. This kind of template or pattern, and the way I send it up when I give talks and things, I go like this. It's like five parts to it. See if this rings true. I, I know I already know it does, but here we go. The first part is storybook romance. The second is isolation. The third is threats of violence. The fourth is violence. The fifth is convincing apology. And then the next part is start all over. And you just described it from what you just said. And I've heard that from from high school juniors and seniors. And here we are having the same conversation. I've talked with people who are executives of pharmaceutical companies who've gone through this and it happens over and over.
0: Although there wasn't the apology. I don't that's that's, that's I don't know why that was, but he never apologized later on cuz I feel like as the years went on, he did get better. And he would apologize if he spoke sharply, let's say, and I would and he he would apologize sometimes for like something
1: that. something very small.
0: Well, he as
1: opposed to, you know, punching you and hitting you and kicking well,
0: you. Well, that's true because when he went on his you know, when he really went on his rampages and, 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 or, and even the first seven years were very physical and then later it was emotional abuse and it wasn't so physical. But when he would like stop talking to me for days, things like that, like he would never apologize for that. But yes, he would apologize for those mi- more minor things that we're saying, like for things like talking sharply or something. He would he would. And I thought that was a, um, a very big improvement that he, he was actually apologizing. Kind
1: of a, a, a potential breakthrough.
0: I, th- I thought it was a breakthrough. Yeah. Mm.
1: The When Dating Hurts podcast is supported by BlendJet. Big bulky blenders are a real pain to use, but the BlendJet 2 blender makes blending a snap. I'm using mine several times a day. Convenience is the reason why. The BlendJet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It can fit into your cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. And BlendJet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. BlendJet lasts for 15 or more blends and recharges quickly via USB-C. Best of all, BlendJet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap, and you're good to go. With over 30 plus colors and patterns to choose from, there's a BlendJet 2 to complement any style. Blend anytime, anywhere, with the BlendJet 2 Portable Blender. Seriously, what are you waiting for? No other blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the BlendJet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Head to BlendJet.com and use the promo code wendatingherts 12 for your 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. That's BlendJet. So I guess to say the least, you never really had those kind of heart-to-hearts where you could sit down and say, hey, look, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Are you seeing what you're doing to me? I mean, you you couldn't go near that conversation, I would imagine.
0: Well, I was always on probation with him. That was the thing. It was always like, he kept me very insecure and he kept me like really worried that he was going to leave. And especially now that I was so dependent on him and also that he put me down so much that I really didn't think I could ever make it on my own and also that his world took over to the degree that I was 100% in his world I couldn't know, I didn't know what I would do without him because his world was everything to me so for many reasons I I I I was very needy in that relationship and he kept me very you know very um insecure and and again I realize now that was a tactic but so sure. for that reason, I would not have had a conversation like that because I I, I didn't, I wasn't conscious enough of what was going on to, to have that conversation. It was more like, I just need to keep trying harder to, if I keep, if I try harder, then things will stabilize. Like if, if I mm-hmm. try harder, then I, then I will get some security. Like he is going to, he's going to finally really trust me and, and, and then it'll be better. So it was really just all about trying harder. I would never have thought to, to talk to him and, and, and put put it to him.
1: You're right. And in a relationship like this, it's listening to how you're telling it. It's not like I could picture you having this kind of adult to adult conversation, you know, that he wouldn't let you get anywhere near that. Right.
0: Well, he's not going to acknowledge that, that, that anything comes from him and he.
1: Like you hadn't even earned the position where you could have that talk in a way. No, because I
0: was always worried about talking to him and. We're, yeah, you
1: were playing defense the whole time.
0: Yeah, I was.
1: Right. I'm just curious now, as this is going on, because it wasn't like you had a relationship for five or six months and that was the end of it, but this is going on over time, you still have your own family. And I was wondering, did you at times, I guess you almost have to sneak away to get a phone call in at times, but did you, did you reach out to your family members or your friends and, and say, look? from where you are, this looks pretty great over here, but I got to be honest with you, you know, this is sort of nightmarish. Did, did you? No,
0: I, I didn't. And I didn't, I wouldn't have said that my relationship was nightmarish at the time. I would have said that I still would have framed it as kind of like a fairy tale. Like here I am kind of living a fairy tale. Like we have this great life. We have all these homes. We travel. It's exciting to be on the road and be backstage and stuff. And so I, 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 it, it, in my mind, it really was still kind of a fairy tale. But every once in a while, there'd be this like really confusing, really hurtful, really difficult time, and I never thought of t- telling anybody. I didn't think that. I don't know. It was so odd, and uh, I, 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 I never told anybody. I mean, my sisters, one by one, there's two of them. They got divorced, and. I felt proud that, you know, their marriage only lasted, lasted like five or 10 years. And here I am going on our 20th, 25th year. So it seemed like we were mm-hmm. really successful. And we were, right. You know, that's the
1: word successful. Yeah. Wow. That's just amazing.
0: And then also the friends thing, it would have been very disloyal to talk to any friend and say a bad word about him. So for the loyalty factor, because loyalty was very important to him and I realized that, um, I, I would never have said anything bad about him to anybody.
1: Because that gets back, and then uh, then we're a whole well, new. And the
0: thing is, it even it's not so it's not so much that it gets back, which is interesting. It's like you come to believe that these people have like superhuman powers. And for instance, there was this friend I had, and Don did not let me be friends with her. He he said that I could not be friends with her. She was a strong woman, and he didn't like strong women, like feminist sure. kind
1: of. Right, and of course.
0: He he was he he hated that. So this is a person I couldn't hang out with. So. He was in Australia one time and I was having a rose garden party at my house and I invited her because I really liked her. And the day of the party, I just started to feel like so afraid, like paranoid. Like I, I felt like he was going to know that she was there, which doesn't make sense. He's in Australia, but, Mm -hmm. but, but he had somehow, you know, with this course of control and mind manipulation, he had made me believe that he knows everything and he's everywhere. And
1: mm-hmm. I I
0: called her and said, you can't come over.
1: Yeah. It's almost like he's playing three-dimensional chess with your head.
0: Yeah. He was everywhere. Even when he wasn't there, he was there.
1: Right. It's like that eye in the sky kind yeah, of a thing. Exactly. Way before people put cameras on their mantles and things like that. Right?
0: Yep. The control was yeah. absolute. He didn't need to wow. be there to be, to be controlling me.
1: So let me ask you this. Okay. So it's 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 you and Don and and that's it. At some point in time, because you're not with him now and you haven't been for a while, but at some, some point in time, someone else enters the story, I imagine, like you reach out to somebody or like what, what one of the things you and I both know very well is that for someone to get out of a, a relationship like this, you have to hit that place. You have to bottom out, much like an alcoholic where they finally say, I can't do this anymore after they've lost their house, they've lost their job, they lost their family, they've lost everything. Maybe, if they're fortunate, they bottom out. It's supposed to be the same way with this. My daughter was murdered in 2005 by her ex-boyfriend. And no, time doesn't heal all wounds. Since those dark days, I have given over 100 speeches and interviews. To be able to dispense such life-saving information, I needed to do a lot of research. Now it's all in one place. My daughter's story and our family's journey is now available in a book entitled When Dating Hurts, available only on Amazon in paperback and ebook. If you have a child, a family member, or a friend between 16 and 24 years of age, I suggest you give When Dating Hurts a read. The information in this book has already saved lives. So at some point you had it. That was the last straw. I don't care how many acres and how many houses I own, right?
0: No, that didn't happen with me. What happened was he was arrested. um, And that's what got me out because I wouldn't have left of my own volition. The last year we were together, he started an affair. He was 70 years old and he started an affair with a 19 year old. And not only was she 19, but she was uh, on Instagram. She had like hundreds of thousands of followers and she was one of these Instagram hotties. So she was always posting photos of herself like, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And she started posting about him, you know, and so not only was he having this affair that I found out about, but she was flaunting it, like to, to everybody, the fact that she was in love with him. And it was a never ending affair. And he kept promising that he was, you know, it was over and he kept begging me, you know, for another chance. And he kept framing it like he was pulled into something that he couldn't get out of. And he needed my help getting out of it and saying that she was a monster and that she had had a hold of him and all this crap, but. He even gave her an engagement ring, and I—I I found the receipt, like a ten thousand dollar engagement ring. When he was married to me, but that didn't even get me to stop to, to walk away because I would leave, but then he would pull me back, and so I—nothing was gonna, nothing was was gonna get me away from from this relationship because I was so deep into it. So basically, he, I, I, I you know came back to the house I had separated from him physically, I moved to our other house and said we needed a separation while this thing was still going on, and then he told me it was over, and then I found out it was still going on, and I would not relent when he kept telling me like to come back, you know, uh, even though as i said i I know I would have, but I was just at this point saying to him that i wasn't going to, and that's what sparked the rampage the violent rampage that led to his being arrested and his arrest even the next morning when I woke up and I my head was aching because he his thing was like squeezing my skull like it was in a vice and then I had mm-hmm. bruises all over me and I called our caretaker and I asked the caretaker I said I had a message for Don, and the message was does Don want some chicken soup so I was still very much in that relationship and it was still I felt really guilty that nine one one that I had called nine one one that then that the well, I knew I had to call nine one because that's what saved my life, but I was felt really guilty about the the arrest and also about the headlines and what it was gonna do to his career. And I was just horrified and mortified over it all. And it really was um the bail conditions of no contact, so that I had a chance for the first time to think about things because even when i had tried to leave him the previous year over and over again he would nonstop message and call me like 140 messages a day like i could not get away from him and the bail conditions got me away from him and that is what saved me that and the fact that now it was public and so i it was would be a lot harder to go back to him when everyone knew you know about this really bad behavior
1: yeah that uh that did it. That you know, it's like divine intervention when something like that happens. Even though you got it the hard way,
0: but I do see what you're saying because I I know that that that's usually the case when people say like, I have a friend who's going through this. What what can I do? And and basically, there's not much you can do except for, you know, let the person know you're there for them. Let the person let keep the lines of communication open because she has got to see it. She's got to see it on her own, and nothing you say is going to make her see it.
1: Yeah, it it is very perplexing. And uh I usually tell people that that whatever your instincts are, let's say you have a friend or it's your daughter or someone you work with, your instincts of what to do versus what actually works are completely different yep so I always tell people, please don't trust your instincts, please go get professional help, please sit You're right. down with counselors'
0: You're right because the, it's it's be, it's we do not have the tools on our own, no one does to be able to deal with this we need you need specialists so you you really need. To, you know, domestic abuse hotline, or even, you know, telling people about our project, find Our Voices, because then they could go online and they can read the stories of 40 and look at the faces and hear the voices of 40 other women who've been where they are and gotten out. And that can help them because, then, and then also we have those customized power and control wheels. So then women can look at those and go like, oh my God, like, you know, when when someone comes over to me, so sometimes I have, you know, people who reach out and they'll, sometimes I'll meet with them. And I hand them the power and control wheel, I just say, here, fill this out about, you know, what's going on with you. And as we're talking, they're, they're, they're circling, you know, like everything on the, on the page, you know? And they, yeah. a light bulb, that is a light bulb moment. And that, that's, that's something to do is just to show them the wheel because then they'll, they might, they'll recognize the pattern, they'll recognize the dynamic, they'll recognize this thing has a name and the name is domestic abuse.
1: Yeah, I love that you do that. I saw that on your website and I saw how people had written on it, I believe with different colors in many cases, you know. And it takes me back to the first time I saw it because that, that diagram is so iconic. It's interesting to me. It looked, I mean, just the style of it, the look of it, you know, because you're an artist. But the look of it, it looks like something that somebody put together and art directed in 1930. I mean, it's well. It
0: is from, it's, it's from 1980. What is it? 1982. It is. It is from quite a long time ago.
1: I know, mm-hmm. and it looks like it's 50 years before that. I mean, it looks mm-hmm. very antiquated. Mm-hmm. So the first time I saw it, I probably thought, "Well, what?" Just from its look, what has that got to do with now? I mean, this is. It doesn't look like what it really says. Well,
0: that's interesting. And, and, and what one thing I've done is, I've the one that is on our website that people can download and print is a binary one. I changed it so because the old one, of course. Talks about what he does, and sometimes it's a lesbian, or sometimes you yes, know, that's right, too. It could that's, be a right. Man that's going through it. So, th- I, sure. I could use a binary version,
1: yes, that's that's very wise because that really is the truth about today and all of us waking up to the full reality of that. But looking at that wheel now, and I was looking at them on your website, and I kind of went all the way around and looked at it, and I saw my, my daughter's life, mm. the end of her life, painted all over that. It was just oh. incredible. You know, one thing, Patricia, I'm curious about, you had, still have, a couple of children, and I didn't hear about them very much throughout your story. So, you know, you've got this tension, this abuse going on, these things. Are your kids somehow magically missing this when it's happening?
0: Well, one thing I, I'll tell you about my kids is um, when I came up with the idea of an exhibit of Finding Our Voices, which would be uh, portraits of 14 women, of women who've gone through domestic abuse, their portraits and their audio of their voices telling their story—that you could look at the photo on the wall and then you could call up a number and listen to the woman telling you her story yeah, as you're looking that's great, at the Great, great idea. Um, thank you. I that was going to be in my my hometown library, and I called up my daughter and asked her how she. I just gave her basically a heads up. This is what I'm doing, and she was very opposed to me doing it and did not want me to do it and. She said it would be very embarrassing for her and, you know, the fact that her oh, that's her right. father lives in this town. And I, I almost I almost canceled the, the exhibit because I didn't, you know, because my, I didn't want to hurt my daughter further. But then I decided that I had been silent for 29 years and I was going to, I needed to do this. And she is now in our project. She, we have these banners that now for COVID, uh, the exhibit has gone outdoors and we have these four foot high Banners featuring these different women. And she's the 30th woman to be on this banner. She she broke her silence. Uh, she's a musician. And in a column for Atwood magazine, on her next CD, she's with Bluey land Records, uh, as Rowan Yellowthorn. Rowan Yellowthorn. Oh, yeah, Rowan Yellowthorn is her name that she uses. And she a lot of the songs are about her father. And she and I talking now because she's a guest on my podcast that I have. And we're just, I'm just learning more and more about what she went through. I didn't, I did not comprehend it. You know, I didn't understand that how much this was damaging the kids, how much they were affected by it. My daughter had, you know, terrible OCD when she was growing up and she was very nervous. And I used to just think that's Jackie, she's nervous, but I actually come to find out that all the things that were happening in the house is what was causing it. And it was completely debilitating her. And so I'm becoming more and more aware and that I want that to be more and more focused of finding our voices is is how this affects the kids. And that's another reason that our imperative with our nonprofit is get the hell out. Like do it safely, but just get out because every day that you're in it, you're not only hurting yourself, but your kids are being harmed.
1: That's wise. I mean, I, and, and in my conversation, you're right. And I've talked with people and I've said, look, you know, I've had some people that said my boyfriend hit me or did that. And I said, then get out of the relationship. And then they kind of go back and then they're do like you did. You know, they say, Well, you know, he was having a really bad week and his dad was mad at him and he got cut from the football team and da 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 da, da. and it's like, No, no, you yeah, have to understand.
0: Right. right, because you know what? We're-
1: this escalates, it gets worse, you're gonna get more of this, it'll get it'll get so much worse.
0: Oh, it only gets worse, it never gets better. And the other thing is that I remember when I just got out of my relationship, I would ask people, like I remember asking a friend of mine you mean he never like grabs your arm? You mean he never shoves you? Like I couldn't get over it, you know? And so it's weird how you, how things become normalized. And the fact is that, and I asked my daughter this too. I'm like, I'm like, you mean Sean never, you know, pushes you never, you know, all these things that I just took for granted. And really, I mean, isn't it true? Like some do and some don't. If they do, they do. If they don't, they don't. Like there's someone that that they're never going to, you know, raise a hand to, uh, you know, their wife or girlfriend, but if you're going to, if a guy does it, if he does it once, he's going to do it again.
1: It'll get worse. It'll, it'll get louder. It'll get worse. It'll be more frequent. It's all those things. Just, just and, whatever and, you and, see, just dial it up. And right? Even
0: I've talked to women, you know, the first 10 years, there was nothing physical. And then the, after the 10 years, it became physical. So that's the other thing, just because it's not it's not physical. That means it's not physical yet. If there's emotional abuse, it often will lead to physical abuse.
1: Right. It's on the way. It's just a matter of time. You found it finding our voices, breaking the silence of domestic abuse. So tell us a little bit about it. You know, what I saw on your website sounded to me so much like this refreshing approach to achieving your goals.
0: Well, what we're doing is we're bringing survivor voices to the table because I went through the whole court process, for instance, uh, when my ex was charged with. I think 6 or 7 counts and I just saw how I had no voice in it. I mean the the district attorney, right? They they t- it becomes the it becomes the state's case. So I was never they never conferred with me at all.
1: I mean you're like you're like an exhibit if they want to use you, right?
0: Exactly. Like if they wanted to that's the thing is they would always say like my victim's advocate, for instance, who would say, "Well, you know, if you don't testify, then we can't we can't, you know, we won't have a case and women are always never, you know, always drop out and decide not to. And I kept reassuring her, no, I am, I am going to be there. But I mean, in the end, they just gave him the sweetheart deal. So, uh, okay. So you're not, you have no voice in the, um, in with the district attorney in the criminal case. You also have no voice often with your lawyer. Like I do have a good lawyer now, but the lawyer that I chose to represent me against, you know, when for the divorce and also against all the frivolous court things that I was being inundated with by my ex he, he oh my god he he was just uh he I had no voice like I, he just did everything on his own without conferring with me and then you'd
1: find out you'd find out afterwards you 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 weren't part of the team right no
0: well, it wasn't for the strategy and also he put statements out to the media and not even uh you know not even check with me about them and and then there's no voice there's there's no voice there's no voice anywhere and that's so What's really exciting, for instance, is just yesterday I gave a presentation to all the police chiefs in Maine because, yeah. if, as I mentioned, we've created bookmarks uh, that are scaled down versions of the banners and they come in sets of 30 and each one has a face of a, 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 a named domestic abuse survivor and then it has the hotline number for the domestic abuse hotline number and it has our website information. And police departments are going to give these bookmarks out to their police officers and they're gonna be handing them to the woman when they make their domestic violence calls just to let the woman know that, you know, this is a group of survivors up there, you know, who've been where you are and got, gotten out. And then we're also gonna be um making a training video. We're gonna have survivors in our group sit around, have a conversation about how the police were and were not helpful, and police departments are gonna mandate that their officers watch this. And then we spoke to all the district attorneys in Maine last year, and we wanna do you know, work with lawyers. So we're just getting survivor voices out there everywhere possible, including in the communities. As we take these banners around, and they're up and down the main street in these downtown businesses, uh, four foot high. These women, and you—you can't—you can't ignore us anymore because we're just getting louder. And um, people have got to hear. You know what's going on. They've got to know it.
1: Yeah, th- that is something that has really changed. You know, my, my daughter was killed in 2005. And I tell you, you, you couldn't find very much information about this. And, you know, they were, none of this is in, my daughter went th- four years through college. None of this was ever, there was no mandated talks about this. I mean, if they had speakers come in, kids in school would probably think, well, I don't even know what's that got to do with me. Things have changed. Oh, man, just the other thing. We
0: do want to go into we're going to go into high schools and colleges. Now, was was your domestic abuse agency helpful to you when you were going through when 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 your daughter died and and through all the process of of, of all of that? And was, did you connect with your domestic abuse agency?
1: So we we did not. When we when we were sitting in sitting in the church for the funeral mass, we had someone from a local domestic violence agency come up to us, and she was very nice, and she gave me a card, and she talked with me, and if you ever need our help. Help, give me a call, and that was fine. I'm not knocking that at all. We didn't see going to domestic violence agencies as our next step at all because Kristen was gone. Our first inkling that anything was going on was a call from detectives. You know, there wasn't there. there we didn't need counseling from domestic violence people from her standpoint. You know, maybe afterwards they would have helped kind of triage mm-hmm. us, but but honestly, mm-hmm. I didn't think about them either. You know, at that time. And I'm not knocking them. I just didn't seem like that was what we needed to do because our next job was figuring out how to live without our daughter, who we were all excited about because she had just graduated. But then also our job was to get this guy in the prison somehow, right. You know, which which eventually happened. But over the course of time, I'd say in terms of people that I spend time on the phone with or emails with, I probably spend more time at domestic violence agency people than than anybody I know mm-hmm. in my life. And And I love them all. I really mean that. These are, these are giving, as you know, giving people, these are uh, so generous, in many cases, just so strong, so smart, but I, I just love them. You know, I'm just, I'm just happy that they let me into their world. I mean, I really, I mean that sincerely and they have helped promote the book. What we've been doing, I even have one of them coming up next week. They'll do a book talk. So the domestic violence agency will invite all kinds of people and board members and advisory people, and we'll all do a big zoom. Get together and just do, uh, I'll talk about the book and then we'll do Q&A and we'll do an hour and a half and getting a lot of those. Yes. What would you say that person should do right this minute or at least the moment this podcast has ended?
0: If you are in a relationship that you have questions about, ask yourself that question. Does this feel good? If it doesn't feel good, get out, you know? And and that's the same thing you could maybe say to someone that you're worried about. Just say, hey, does this relationship feel good? Right, yes. And then maybe that's something they could think about. So rather than you trying to tell them that they should leave, just have them think about that. And then recognize that everyone deserves to feel good. And if you don't feel good in this relationship, it's not a good relationship.
1: I mean, everybody deserves to be in a relationship where they feel safe and they feel good. You're right. You know? and feel good to me means also that you're not feeling fear about the relationship, which is totally contrary to love, love and well, my, fear are completely really opposite direction. right?
0: Yeah. That makes me think about something like after, after, after my ex was arrested, like that went, cause that was like the worst rampage yet, you know, in 1994, like I had a, it it changed yes. something in me. Like, basically, I, I just, I just sexually, like, I, I really was difficult with him. And I, and, that, and it was because of that. And I didn't even really, really put it together. But it's because I didn't feel safe. And how can you be intimate with someone? Because what's, what's intimacy is all about? Right? Like, like, you need to feel safe with someone to be intimate with them. And that had a huge effect on that. And so that just, I think that just points, points to it, like how, of course, like you, 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 love you can't love and not being safe don't go together and intimacy and not being safe don't go together and if you are afraid of the person mm-hmm. then you can't be intimate and you can't you know there's no love, there's no love there you, you can't have love you know it's a one-sided anyway it's it's just doesn't it, whatever i just wasn't feeling safe with him like i was still you know just could not it was just different i mean i think that's a different thing but um Yeah, but I do think that uh, it's all tied in together. You
1: know, coming off what you had said earlier, there was a conversation I had with a a young woman. She was a high school senior, and she had been in and out of dating a guy for a year, and he was he was the whole power wheel, uh, walking around on two legs. But so she was struggling with what to do. You know, they had gone through all this these histrionics having to do with he's going to take her to the prom. But then he's not going to take her and he's playing all these mind games about that. And she doesn't know what to do. And in the meantime, her parents can't stand this guy and they're afraid of him and her siblings can't stand him and they're afraid of him. I mean, all this was going on and the mother reached out to me. This is a few years ago. Towards the end of one of the conversations, I said, I don't know if you would ever get her, if she would ever allow this to happen, but I would be perfectly happy to sit on the phone and talk with her. I don't have, besides the fact that I care, but I don't have a vested interest. I don't know her. But if she would talk with me sometime, I'm up for it. Call me anytime. And she thought that was great. So a few weeks pass, and a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, the phone rings, and here's the mom and the daughter on the phone. So we spoke for a while, and I knew about the relationship, so I could kind of go through the template of storybook romance and isolation all these things that were taking place. And so she was reluctant to go into threats of violence very much, but her mother filled in a few of those. And then the daughter said, well, yeah, okay. Well, I didn't think of them that way, mom, but okay, I understand. So I explained how violence was coming next. But the place that was the breakthrough, I feel, was a thought that occurred to me on that call, which was, I said, let me just ask you this one question. You are 18 now. You're going to college next year. And you'll go to college. And let's say he's your boyfriend. And let's say that you're still going along and you're still having the same things that, that, that we're talking about now, but they will escalate. I mean, one day, real violence will show up. It won't be just threats of violence. At some point, then maybe you get married. And so you're dealing with this guy who could be difficult and does these things, and he will do them to a greater degree. Mm-hmm. And then, so I kind of played it all the way out into her 60s and 70s. And I said, so you're going to go through things. I mean, you're going to have to decide on a house and you have to take care of it. And you'll be buying cars and what to do with the kids and school and problems and sickness. I said, this is your guy. This is your partner. Here's my big question to you. Do you think he's the best that you can do? You're 18 right now. Looking ahead to your life, you're 18. You could live to be 78, 98. Do you actually sort of handcuff yourself to this person the rest of your life? like you made the decision now he's it and do you really feel he's the best you can do and i said don't answer the question but talk about it in your own head you don't have to tell your mom definitely don't tell me and i heard months later that that's what broke it that's what finally oh, did wow. it for her
0: yeah Congratulations. i mean that's fine. that was You're doing yeah, that, great work. That was a good moment wow that's crucial that's so important and that's that's huge it really is because it's it's hard that's the hard thing is to get to get away. And you did that, you know, you accomplished that. That's fabulous. Yeah, that
1: felt pretty good. And of course, when I said those things, I was, had my fingers crossed, but I found out later it really made a difference. Wow. Great. I'm curious, Patricia, when you were away from him for good and were considering the possibility of dating or maybe getting married sometime, how did you ever get to the point where you felt like you could trust someone else? Because you could really feel like a lot of people. I guess that's just the way men are. Although you, as you said, you were finding out that other people weren't getting pushed around and they weren't getting. Well, I
0: did. I did start a relationship. Like maybe two and a half years out, I met somebody, and he. I said to this person, I said, "You're everything that my ex was not, and that you're, and you're nothing that he was." And he seemed the total opposite. And it was like, oh my god, I finally found like kind of the person that I really. Sh- was meant to be with because he was, you know, he loved the outdoors like I do. He was poetic because it's funny because my ex, even though he's written sensitive songs, he was not romantic and he was not sensitive, but this guy was, he was super sensitive and he was a poet. And, but then I found out that he actually was a lot like my ex, which is really weird, but he just, he just had, he just presented himself differently. So he presented himself to be a very, sensitive person when, you know what I mean? It was weird because he was actually a dangerous individual. Like he, he, he was, uh-huh. Uh-huh. He, he was, he was like a lot like my ex, but he, but he, but he just,
1: it was packaged differently.
0: Exactly. Right. He was packaged differently. He was packaged completely differently, but he was the same. And when I started to get signs of this, all of a sudden, I listened to my gut, which was the difference. So I, you know, this something happened where he just like, you know, sort of got really cold and it was just really weird. And I walked away and I made that decision and not gave, not giving him the benefit of the doubt. And then I came to find out that more things about this individual that proved that it really was a good thing. I got away, but I did listen to my gut instincts, which was amazing. And but it's hard to do because, you know, I really wanted it. Like it was, it was beautiful. It was exciting. It was so much fun. And and that's the thing too is sometimes your mind is telling you something, but you're kind of going with the heart because you just don't want to see the reality because you love the fantasy so much. Oh, you
1: want it to work, sure.
0: Also because it just sounds, it seems so amazing. And but this is one case where I did, you know, listen to my instincts and. Thank God, and there you have it. So I, I am open, but I'm just going to really be paying very close attention because I really like my life very much. I I, I don't like to compromise. I don't. I want to just. I love being able to do everything I want to do, and I'm very. i I think that's the difference too. Is I'm. I'm very happy and content on my own. I don't feel like I need anybody. So I think that that that's what you have to do. You have to be strong and not need someone. And so that if someone comes in your life, you're able to look at it clearly. And so that's a good thing.
1: I hear everything you're saying. And, and what I'm getting from this too, is it's like, no matter what happens, you still want to be in your own way, that independent person, that self-reliant person, you know, you're not handing the keys over.
0: And I'm not, like, even when I met this guy, like, he said he didn't like the color pink. So, I, like, I didn't wear it. Like, that's so stupid. Like, I'm, I'm saying, what the hell? Like, what, what was I thinking? Like, once again, you know, I was going to that old pattern. And now I know that if I ever met anybody, like, I am what I am. And I'm not going to change. and I'm not, no one's going to make me feel bad. About yeah, I could picture I'm if
1: somebody doing. said that to you now, you'd say, uh, wait till you see me tomorrow. And then you'll be head to toe pink. I can, I can see that. Exactly. Is there anything that you think I may have missed or didn't cover? Something that our listeners should know, need to know, that could save them or the life of someone they care about? I, is there anything that you were kind of hoping would come up?
0: Just to thank you for what you're doing and to take that grief that you went through, and because that what your experience do, does resonate with people, right? And so it makes it it makes more people open to the message uh, because of what you've gone through. And that's very valuable to use. And the fact that you're doing it is, is wonderful because we just need to get more and more people, however we can to, to pay attention. And so I'm just very honored to be on this program with you. Oh,
1: that's nice. Thank you.
0: I want to thank you so much for what you're doing.
1: There's no doubt that awareness and education is the way to go. Because some people right now are experiencing these same things we've been talking about, and they just they don't get it. it it's um, it doesn't add up to them getting it because because they don't know. And and I I could see myself. I could see so many people. You know, you don't feel well. You know that the relationship doesn't run smoothly at times, but you don't know that it's actually making a picture, and the picture is that you are in an abusive relationship. And that there's danger involved. Even if you don't get physically hurt, emotionally, you're, you're being led down paths that you shouldn't be going down, that someone isn't taking you down. Yeah. Patricia, if you were to put up a big billboard to advise parents, young women, students, and teachers about dating violence, in big, bold letters, what would it say?
0: I, I guess I would just say, um, love should feel good.
1: Great. That would be strong.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about what it should be, you know, in addition to what it shouldn't be.
1: Well, Patricia, I can't thank you enough for stopping everything you're doing and joining and sharing your story today. You know, you and I have been talking about abuse and unhealthy relationships and you never know when that person's on the, at the tipping point where it's like, "Eh, I don't know, hang in there, don't hang in there. And I want to be one of those people. And I know you are who just gives them a little more urge to get out. And you've said that a lot of times. And I just want to say today that I thank you so much. Thank you
0: so much. And send me a link and I'll put it up on our Facebook when it's done. You
1: got it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. One in three women will suffer serious physical violence at the hands of an intimate partner. It typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24, but could happen at any age. We lost our daughter to dating violence. But if we had read a book like When Dating Hurts... Back then, we believed things would have turned out differently. Do your daughter a favor. Do your family a favor. Dating violence is real. Believe me, I know. Read When Dating Hurts, then pass a copy onto someone who needs to see it. When it comes to something as insidious as
0: dating violence, there are no do-overs.